Kiora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm talking to six of our GP colleagues about their special interests. This is part two of a two-part series. At the Goodfellow Unit, our educational products have a theme running through them, Skills for Next Monday. This podcast may not give you a skill for next Monday, but it may sow the seed for you to think about a new special interest that we know increases the love for our jobs, adds variety, may prevent burnout, and keeps us in general practice. We will be covering six topics, as I said. Medical writing and completing your master's with Dr. Vicky Mount. Skin cancer medicine with Dr. Sarah Redfern. Student and transgender health with Dr. Rona Carroll. Cosmetic medicine with Dr. Marcia Walker. Addiction Medicine with Dr. Vicky McFarlane, and finally, Palliative Care with Dr. Richard Lowe. Some common themes come through as I was talking to our colleagues. Themes such as finding a good mentor, reaching out for advice, finding balance, and don't be scared to go back to study in order to be able to move forward. I thoroughly enjoyed producing this podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did making it. All right, so my next guest is Dr. Vicky Mount. Vicky works in general practice at Mission Bay Doctors here in Auckland, and she's completing her master's in public health. Vicky works alongside me as a medical writer at the Goodfellow Unit. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, Louise. Thanks for having me. So, Vicky, medical writing, tell us a little bit about your special interest. Yeah, thanks. I guess um, it's an interest that I brought with me to medicine rather than something I developed after study, which fortunately has sort of dovetailed nicely into a a little niche that keeps me busy outside of my clinical time at the moment. So as you mentioned, I do a little bit of writing work for the Goodfellow Unit. That tends to be interesting work that kind of keeps me engaged with new topics and new new things that are happening. And I also do a little bit of writing uh, outside of that, Sometimes it's paid, most of the time it's not. Often um, those writing skills allow me to do other things like pursue my sort of passion projects, maybe contribute to a clinical paper. So yeah, it's a a versatile little skill to have actually and one that I probably didn't anticipate being as useful as it is when I entered medicine. So you had this interest coming into medicine, Vicky. What did you do, the training that you did to become a medical writer? Tell us about that. Before med school, I'm one of these people who came to med school late after sort of working for about 10 years in the health industry. And my background, I initially trained, I did a conjoint degree, BSc, BCom. I was passionate that I wanted to work in pharmaceutical research, which of course didn't really exist in any meaningful way in New Zealand at the time that I did it. And at that time, that conjoint was quite an unusual thing to do at Auckland University. Um, So you have to traipse between all the buildings trying to make the timetable work. I did my BSc in pharmacology and physiology, and that came in useful later on after a bit of travelling. I came back to New Zealand and was looking for work and came across an ad that was advertising for a role at ADIS, as it was then known, who used to publish the MIMS and have subsequently been taken over a couple of times and I think are now currently owned by Elsevier or one of the other big publishing houses. And you had to submit a written project on, I think it was on hypertension or something like that. And I thought, okay, that's great. Cause I was doing a little bit more study at the time. I needed a part-time job. So I did that and just got the job. And it was a really interesting job. So I became employed by then um, using my sort of 
critical trial analysis skills that I developed as part of my pharmacology training and the writing side of things that they trained me in, which was a really great experience actually to be taught how to write for a medical audience and how to review data really well. So that was excellent skills that I didn't realize at the time were going to be really valuable as a clinician and as a GP actually we were constantly called upon to assess you know new treatments or something you know a patient comes in and says oh what do I really have to take a statin and you you really want to give a good answer to that so those skills are really useful in a lot of different aspects of what we do. So Vicky you mentioned it's sort of a sideline how much of your week or month perhaps would you spend writing? On writing projects yeah I try at the moment I work maybe 0.7 or 0.6 depending on the week clinically Um, and I try and work 0.2 on writing stuff it tends to balloon beyond that in the manner of uh, work in general Um, but yeah typically I try and spend at least part of a day each week doing something as as you mentioned in the introduction at the moment I'm completing my master's which is a writing project in itself but Typically for the good fellow, I might be doing a, a project a month at some times of the year. So it's usually a day or so per week if it's well balanced. It, with all projects, though, there's peaks because obviously there's a deadline and you tend to spend more time closer to the deadline and less time further away from it. So it, um, it balances out. But it's a nice little respite from clinical work. And Vicky, if someone was interested in medical writing, what advice would you give them or where would they go to find more information out about it? It's a good question. And I was thinking about that before we were due to speak, because of course, my skill set is the product of a particular career path that you know makes more sense in retrospect than it did looking forward, I have to say. And I really think there's probably a need for some good teaching on, on how to write well. And I'm not sure, I sort of thought I should have a look around and see what's possible because the training that I had through my medical writing um, job was so great that that was sort of mentored one-on-one by someone who would review your work and step you through the process and then the whole process of drafting and editing was a very formulaic thing. That stuff, I guess, outside of a journalism background, you might not get exposed to easily and certainly through medicine you wouldn't. So I suspect it's one of those things that if you were interested, it would be about finding someone to maybe have a chat to, um, to mentor you a little bit. I'm sure um, that, you know, anyone who's involved in editorial content for any of the publishers that we have in New Zealand, um, you know, the journals or the other health media would have this kind of teaching available to people who work for them. But yeah, I'm not sure how you'd access it. I think it would be something you'd have to seek out either through an academic institution or by finding a mentor. And Vicky, just before you go, one of our guests on our previous Gypsy podcast was Nairi Kurse from the Department of General Practice, and she was highly encouraging our colleagues to consider ongoing education, including the master's uh, program. So you've mentioned that you've done the master's of public health. Just tell us briefly how that's gone for you and time commitments, and is it something that you, that you would do again, and would you recommend? Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, it's probably not a great time to ask me as I have <laughs> in the last third of it, but no, I'll give a fair answer. Look, it's a great thing to do. I think as we're talking about that sort of trial analysis, just understanding how to do research, how difficult it is, and particularly in primary care, you know, my um, master's is in vaccines, which is a funny little area, actually, because it really crosses, um, you know, it sits in primary care, but it's something that often the secondary care 
doctors are advising on. And so it really bridges that gap. And I think it's become really obvious to me how much scope there is for good research in a primary care setting. And I think I would love to continue doing it. Um, time commitment, look, it's manageable. Like I say, if you can arrange sessional work where you can flex up and down as you need to with some understanding colleagues, um, that's very helpful. And of course, there's the peaks and troughs. So being able to take the time when you really need to have a couple of weeks of focused work is really useful, but certainly manageable alongside a clinical um, work. It does get challenging if you've got, like me, you've got a family who have demands as well. So, you know, keeping all those balls in the air can be challenging at times. And I think it's about knowing which ones are able to be dropped occasionally and which ones will bounce. <laughs> but, you know, generally, generally a manageable thing to do and really would encourage anyone in primary care who's thinking about it to get involved. Great. Thank you, Vicky, for your time today. Awesome insights. Thanks, Louise. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Sarah Redfern. Sarah is a specialist general practitioner who works in primary care in a group practice in St. Heliers. Her special interest is skin cancer medicine, where she has completed additional training. She works at SkinSight in Auckland. Welcome, Sarah, and thank you for joining me. Hi, everyone. Sarah, skin cancer medicine, tell us about this. After doing my GP training program in 96, I was a GP in South Auckland and I bought my practice in 97, so straight away. 14 years later with my, um, I guess, priorities had changed. I had two children and I basically sold that practice just so I could be a part-time GP and, uh, and put some more time into my kids, etc. Was I found it too hard to do both at that time, own my own practice and do that. So I then basically went to work part-time with my, one of my old GP training program colleagues, Dr. Anthony Tam. And Anthony um, is one of kind of the sort of early pioneers in you know, GP special interest skin cancer, had been doing it for quite a few years. And I worked for him basically as his locum GP while he was, um, he was at SkinSight. I was working for him at Mount Eden Medical Centre, um, covering him while he was doing his skin cancer. And after a few months, Anthony suggested, you know, that maybe I should do some training and come and join him at SkinSight because the practice was growing, booming, as you can imagine. Um, so I kind of thought about it. I was a wee bit reluctant at first because I thought in that specialty, I wouldn't have that ongoing uh, relationship with my patients. That, I, that was my most favorite thing about, about general practice, is, and it still is, is my ongoing relationship with my patients. And, you know, that special relationship you have, they own you and you own them. But anyway, so after sitting in with Anthony a few times and, you know, realising the whole process of skin cancer medicine, whereas, you know, just about every fair skin Kiwi over the age of 40 is at high risk for skin cancers, that and those high-risk patients were uh, as recommended sort of annual checks. So I was basically came to see these patients at least annually and that continued my love with my patients and the ongoing relationship I had with them. So I started working with Anthony. Um, he has been fantastic in mentoring me and teaching me and, um, yeah, basically supporting me in this journey. And initially I did um, Amanda Oakley's demoscopy course here in New Zealand and whilst um, being supervised by Anthony and doing a few sessions at SkinSight, and then did the University of Queensland Primary Care Skin Cancer Medicine Certificate with another one of my colleagues, Dr. Wheeling Koo, who also is a GP who works at SkinSight and does part-time both. And 
I find that, that's also another great relationship, someone who's, who supports me as well. And did a couple of University of Queensland courses and have gradually increased my hours up to three to four tenths of skin cancer medicine at SkinSight at, at each of our two different clinics in Rimuera and Pakaranga and do also keep doing three to four tenths um, general practice at St. Helier's Medical. So it sounds like quite a nice mix, Sarah. What would a typical day at SkinSight look like for you? I do a sort of four-hour session where most of my session is, is made up of half an hour mole checks where we do full body um, skin cancer checks and in which we include uh, photography, serial monitoring of moles, total body photography for mole mapping, but also the diagnostic. Um, and then at least, probably at least one session a day where I would do a surgery. And I do excision biopsies, punch biopsies, uh, obviously lots of treatments with liquid nitrogen, uh, cryotherapy. And previously when I was in South Auckland, I guess I did a few surgeries because patients down there couldn't have, didn't have medical insurance and couldn't afford to go. So you're kind of forced into doing those procedures when you work in a poorer area. So I just basically improved on my abilities as doing elliptical excisions, which I mostly do now. And, and you know, I re- and as you know, obviously with time, you get really good at those kind of things. The more complicated things I refer to Anthony and plastic surgeons, melanoma surgeons as well, certainly for lymph node biopsies, et cetera. But the whole, basically, we're managing all skin cancers up until that, that complicated surgical management. And the few patients that we refer on for to oncologists or to surgeons basically still come back to us for their, you know, three to six monthly mole checks after they've had a melanoma or yearly depending on their on their risk. And so I had this ongoing relationship. So you see them, I see them for surgeries. I then may see them for a wide local excision if it's a melanoma. And then I see them, you know, every six months for the next five years. So yeah, you get a lovely relationship with these people. It's great. Yeah. So your fear of lack of continuity didn't actually eventuate. You're seeing these people often. And that's what I thought I would miss. And the nice thing for me is, you know, skin cancer, I'm I'm a very high risk patient, although I've never had one yet, but um, you know, I'm in that demographic. So I feel I can relate to my patients too, because I I see Wheeling at one of my colleagues there for my annual mole checks and I've had excisions and etc. Um, fingers crossed that I don't get one, but I am at high risk. Flip, slop, slap. Yeah. Right. So if someone was interested, it sounds like you fell on your feet as far as finding a mentor and then doing some training. But if someone was interested in upskilling, what would your recommendations be in New Zealand? Well, I guess it's um, talking to people like us. I mean, I it was Anthony who guided me through this process. And it's been hard to for patients and, and GPs to to work out who's good at skin cancer medicine, who are the ones to go to? Do I go to a surgeon, a dermatologist, a melanoma surgeon, etc.? But the people who do it the most, in my opinion, are the best at it. And Anthony works full time in skin cancer medicine. I do, you know, four tenths. Wheeling does two to three, uh, three tenths. We're doing. I'm doing hundreds of mole checks, you know, a month, and you know, dozens of, of excisions. And the best thing at the moment is that the New Zealand Skin Cancer Doctor Society has been created by doctors like us, Anthony's on the committee, Dr. Chris Boberg's the, the chairman, all around New Zealand. And, and this is a new organisation in which those like us who've been doing skin cancer medicine for a few years have been grandfathered into becoming the inaugural members of this organisation. 
And the role of the New Zealand skin cancer doctors is to support people along that learning pathway. So that's the website to go to and email um, someone on the committee who will get in contact with you. So it's New Zealand skin cancer doctors. Fantastic. Excellent advice. Well, thank you for joining us today. Most inspirational. And yes, we have to remember those get our skin checks and slip, slop, slap. Thanks Absolutely. And get an annual mole check too. Annual mole check. Absolutely. I agree. Thanks, Sarah. So my next guest is Dr. Rona Carroll. She's a GP working in student health and a senior lecturer at the Department of Primary Healthcare and General Practice at the University of Otago in Wellington. She has a special interest in transgender healthcare and is a member of the Professional Organisation for Transgender Health, Aotearoa, or PATHA. Rhonda provides gender-affirming hormone therapy to trans and non-binary patients and is interested in educating medical students and health practitioners in this area. Welcome, Rona, and thank you for talking to us about your special interest. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Perfect. So tell us your special interest, transgender health. How did this evolve? Yeah, so um, I've developed a special interest in transgender health care, which includes providing gender-affirming hormone therapy, or GAT as it's sometimes known, but, but also more general care and support for transgender, non-binary and gender diverse patients. So my interest in this area really came through working in youth health. Um, I worked in a youth one-stop shop or a YOS for many years, where I had a lot of transgender and, and non-binary patients. And I could see the gaps in health practitioners' knowledge and the need to, to upskill and learn more so that I could provide the, the best care that I could for my patients. And I also, you know, I really saw the distress that many of these young people experience when they struggle to access services or care, or when they experience stigma and discrimination. And I really wanted to be able to provide better support to them and, and to be able to advocate for my patients. So I ended up uh, moving on from the, from the youth one-stop shop to a student health service where I work now, uh, where, which provides a lot of gender-affirming health care. And it's, and it's here where I've really gained more experience and knowledge and been able to really pursue my interests even further. Yeah, for me, seeing the benefits, both in terms of the physical health and mental well-being and supporting gender diverse young people to access care is what's led to my passion and interest in this area. And the knowledge and experience I've developed, it means that when a young person comes to see me asking for hormones or for a referral, I feel like I can really help them. And it's been it's been really rewarding really rewarding to watch young people increase in confidence and well-being when they can access care to affirm their gender identity. So that's what's led me here. So you talked about needing to move workplace in order to sort of upskill and get into an area that was working for you and your patients, but did you do any further training, Rona? Well, there isn't a sort of a specific training course or anything like that in New Zealand at this stage. Uh, so my learnings really come through a combination of experience in caring for patients. Um, and working closely with colleagues in endocrinology, counselling and psychology, who I've learned a lot from. Um, and of course, I've also learned a lot from my patients through, through listening to them and, and, and hearing about their experiences. So I'm also part of a transgender healthcare supervision group, which has been really valuable. Um, and I'm a member of PATHA. So you mentioned PATHA, that stands for Professional Association for Transgender Health Aotearoa. And yeah, I'd really recommend any health professional who's interested in this area might want to join this organization. They're developing further education for GPs, so there might be some more formal training or modules available in the future. Uh, and the website currently has some guidance for GPs about prescribing maintenance hormones. So if people were 
looking for further information to, to upskill or further their knowledge, um, I'd really recommend people look at the New Zealand guidelines for gender affirming care. We're really lucky in New Zealand to have New Zealand specific guidelines, which are based on international best practice, and they're really worth a read. You know, a lot of the, some of the local health pathways websites have been updated to include specific information for your area because it, uh, it does vary around the country quite a lot. And, you know, if people are looking for further information, the Health Navigator has a good, has a good website with some more basic kind of 101 information about uh, definitions and, and general um, aspects of gender diversity. Fantastic, Rona. That's really useful. So as far as integrating this type of care into your practice, it sounds very much like it's you're working in general practice in student health and then you have a group or a cohort of patients. You don't have a specific clinic that you work in? Yeah, that's right. I do this work within my general practice at the student health service, but it has be, it has turned into something quite different from normal general practice. So my days don't look the same as a lot of other people. So at the university, the students know that myself and one of my colleagues have a particular interest in this area. So um, I have a lot of transgender and non-binary patients coming to see me. And, and we I work really closely with my other GP colleague and with a counsellor who has expertise in this area to form a bit of a sort of an MDT approach. Um, we practice an informed consent model of care. So we, where we start gender affirming hormones in primary care. So we can do everything sort of in-house rather than referring to secondary care. So, yeah, we do this in this kind of MDT way together and we work closely with our local endocrine department who can answer any prescribing questions that might come up. Um, and we have access to, to ask a psychologist for a bit more support on advice on more complex situations. I've really found that primary care is a really ideal place to provide this kind of care. So we can provide that all round holistic care, supporting people's physical health, any psychological sort of mental well-being difficulties um, and their prescribing needs. It can sometimes be quite a lot of different people involved in, in care, such as surgeons and other services. So having that central person, having a GP at the centre to, to do this work and to do those referrals and follow ups is, you know, I think it works really well. It's one of the parts of my job that I'm enjoying the most. And then I also work in the university at, at the University of Otago in Wellington and the Department of Primary Healthcare and General Practice. So in this work, the transgender health is one of my research interests, and I enjoy teaching medical students about this when I get the chance. And as you mentioned, I'm on the education committee for PATHA, where uh, we're sort of working to, to improve transgender health education for health professionals. I've been involved in starting a new organisation, which is called Pride in Health. This is a sort of charitable trust, which is just getting started. We're just in the early stages, but keep an eye out for us because we'll um, be providing ways to upskill in all sorts of areas of LGBTQIA plus health in the future. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like this interest has become quite a passion and quite time consuming. Yeah, that's right. It's really, um, it's funny when you go down a little area of, of interest like this, it, it feels narrow, but then it actually becomes quite big and takes up, takes up quite a lot, but I'm really enjoying it. It's very rewarding. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today. And hopefully you've um, inspired others to go down this path. Great. Thank you, Dorona. Thank you. So my next guest is Dr. Richard Lowe. He's working in general practice at the Stoddard Road Medical Centre here in Auckland. He is an Auckland Medical School graduate and has trained in palliative care and worked at Mercy Hospice. So welcome, Richard, and thanks for joining us. Pleasure to talk to you. 
Yeah. So tell us about your special interest of palliative care. How did you get interested in that? And what training did you do? Yes. So palliative care, I often like to say my interest is palliative care and end-of-life care. Even though end-of-life care fits under the umbrella of palliative care, there's so much confusion for general public and for GPs as well that I talk about them as two separate things. That The end-of-life is just at the end seeing someone out of this world and the palliative care could be so much more before that, potentially years or decades prior to that. My interest probably slowly developed as a young person. I think um, just as a teenager and a youth, I was always uh, interested in life and death and existential questions. And then uh, with my own grandparents, they uh, uh, they had different health problems. Two of them had dementia. And so it was there was challenges for, for them and for the family. I was only young then, maybe 20 or earlier, and that made me think a lot about how we how we get the best out of a incurable illness, or um, when your health is failing you so badly, um, what can you do? And even then, but without knowing about palliative care, it was obvious that discussing things and planning, uh, being very intentional and planning about how you could make it go as good as possible, was really important, rather than just um, not addressing it ticking along, living longer and worse. So that idea that length for the length of life just for the sake of it was not always the best. So then at medical school, there was not a lot of uh, exposure to palliative care. I can't even recall. Maybe I, if you asked me at medical school, I might not even know exactly what it was. But once I hit the wards um, as a house officer and TI as a house officer, I met um, the palliative care team, or they would liaise and consult on some of our patients. That's when um, I got very curious about uh, who they were, because they they seem to really understand or be um, addressing the bigger picture, not just that person's acute illness. So that was how it developed. And then your next question: What training did I do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, all that interest had. Um, accrued and then just as I was a house officer a new new positions opened up for house officers to do three months of work in hospice so I um, I jumped at that chance and um, made sure that it <laughs> happened and fitted my roster and I went to Mercy Hospice at, for three months and uh, lapped it all up. It was, ex- it was exactly what I was looking for in medicine. And then just as that finished, uh, another new um, um, program opened of having GPs come through hospice for six months further training, GPs or GP registrars. So the, the timing just worked out perfectly that these positions were there. And so I did what's called um, the GP with special interest intern role at Mercy Hospice for six months, paid for by uh, Ministry of Health funding to improve primary palliative care. Um, And it also included uh, a diploma. 
often GPs who are wanting a special interest feel a little bit nervous about doing additional training. So can you tell us about the requirements for that diploma? Definitely wouldn't be scared of this diploma. It's, uh, it's, there's, there's no prerequisites. Probably the only thing is fitting it in your schedule and the broad sense or your practices schedule. So you have to spend six months full-time or part-time covering a year um, working at hospice and, and mercy and ADHB is having people. So is Totara and counties. So is Harbour and WDHB. I don't know beyond Auckland, but the, so positions come up every year or six months and it's straightforward application process. No, as I said, no prerequisite training. And um, they're mainly looking for people who are willing and people who can take the time from general practice and what sort of was the, the coursework um, requirements and time commitment perhaps the bulk of it is working on the ground in the hospice so for me that was monday to friday in the inpatient ward at mercy hospice but i've heard of other arrangements where you do community work where you do two or three days a week etc um, and your actual clinical time is the, the main part of the diploma is doing clinical time supervised and in conjunction with a palliative specialist. But there is also case studies, an essay, supervisor reports, but very manageable, I found. Um, and a couple hours a week over six months. And the, the hospice was very supportive to make sure you had enough time to get the diploma done because it's in their interest as well. So you've done your clinical time in hospice, you've done your diploma. How do you integrate palliative care now into your working week? Yes, that's the, the next challenge. Oh, I should I should just say on the diploma, these gypsy positions at the hospice are well paid as also. So they try and match or compete a general practice wage because they know they need to to attract people. So integrating it uh, into the future, um, we're working on that. So I'm still in touch with Mercy Hospice. I have a close relationship with the doctors there. And at the at the moment, the best way to make use of my training is, appears to be through working in age residential care and rest homes. Well, it's certainly in terms of uh, um, end of life, a huge percentage of people die in age residential care. And certainly there's a lot of people needing palliative care there. So I've started to work more and more in the rest homes and some people come to my general practice come and see me transfer from other clinics um, when they are in a a palliative situation because there's there's enough word of mouth that I've got some extra skills to help. And do you think having the dual role has increased your job satisfaction and will keep you in the job longer? Definitely Uh, I think I did toy a lot with uh, doing palliative specialty training rather than general practice. But I think I saw that I could still work in general practice, get, get all the good parts of general practice, plus do plenty of palliative care type work. So yeah, being able to pursue both definitely improves job satisfaction. And there, there apart from day-to-day work incorporating it in the rest times, there is there were some hospices they, they employ um, GPs or medical officers as well. So if you did further training in, in your locality, you might find you could work at the hospice 
as well. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been most inspirational and um, good to know about those paid positions of additional training because, you know, often that's a barrier to people embarking on an interest that may um, may interest them. So, yeah, that's that's excellent information. Thank you very much. And anyone, uh, you're welcome to contact Louise and, and get my details if you're wondering exactly about the application process or the positions. I'd be happy to pass on what I know or, or contact your areas hospice they may just be about to advertise and you'll be in all right well thank you for your time today so i'd like to introduce my next guest dr vicky mcfarlane a specialist gp for over 19 years and who's most recently worked at the good medicine clinic in Greylin. she now however works mainly as an addiction specialist at cads in auckland her role is a clinical role the clinical lead of detoxification service in auckland so welcome, Vicky, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. So addiction medicine, tell us about this. How did your special interest evolve and where is it taking you? Tell us about your journey. Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, I guess I first developed an interest in addictions when I was working, um, firstly, in um, at a small clinic in K Road, actually, probably in 2005. Um and it was a little clinic called Kiwi Health. And it was the first time, to be honest, that I'd ever really seen any patients that were on methadone and probably really significant number of patients with any addiction issues. And I was kind of interested in, a, in that. And then when I was working at another practice in Greyland, which was a um, very low cost access practice with quite a diverse demographic, I saw more people with addictions there and often coexisting mental health problems. And I, I don't know, I, I guess I was just interested in... Um, and what was what was um, the ba- basis of addiction? I was kind of fascinated with the um, the uh, crossover between the neurobiology and the neurology of of kind of addiction, and then all of the um, other kind of psychological and psychosocial kind of um, you know contributing factors. And so, whilst I was at Greylin and um, at that practice, I kind of explored. Um, or um, options are about working with CADs actually and so I initially started working there part-time and enjoyed my work there actually and and in 2010 um, decided to actually start the training program in addictions at CADs and left general practice at that point um, to work full-time in addictions and um, and again I, I, I really I found it I find it a really interesting area I think it's um, look it's not everyone's cup of tea obviously but for me it, um, it allowed me to work with people who who um, are complex um, and um, and also have the time I guess because that was the other thing that I really struggled with in primary care was actually having the time to actually look at the underlying kind of factors and actually really spend time with people talking to them and I I was able to do that um, at CADS so I guess that's um, that was why I why I got into it and why I still enjoy the work I I obviously I've dabbled um, got in in general practice again um, intermittently throughout the last 10 years and um because I do I do miss um some aspects of general practice I I do really miss seeing um young people and I miss that sometimes that continuity of care and um so I've gone back intermittently and done part-time general practice but continue to work at CADS um and, and that has had its own challenges to be honest um and and usually um because my role at the moment at CADS was because a leadership kind of role, it, it takes, it's pretty much a full-time job. So it becomes quite difficult to, to do two jobs. What 
what sort of challenges, you've mentioned challenges, what sort of challenges did you find trying to juggle general practice plus your kids role apart from the time aspects? Yeah, I think what, what the last time I went back to general practice, um, uh, initially I was seeing, um, I don't know, what, what would you call the kind of normal kind of general practice patients, so quite diverse, um, and, and that was great for the first six months. And then I guess what, what happened, though, was that the patients that I started to see um, became more and more addiction focused. And I was getting referrals as well from other GPs um, who knew that I was um, kind of specialized in that area. So then and because, and, and because I was only working one day a week, it became um, kind of like my heart, my days that I that my day that I was there was um, then actually really predominantly addiction um, focused. And um, I realized that the patients um, were, I was much better able to manage these patients within the CADS um, system um, and not in primary care, because as I said before, they're, they're quite complex. Um, and um, at CADS, I obviously work with a team um, of um, nurses and um, other, other support people. And so, uh, and, and, and again, I didn't have that sort of time constraints around um, trying to manage um, patients um in a, in a gp setting so so that was a kind of um not unfortunate but that that's probably the main challenge to be honest um with it and i and to be completely frank as well i think you know when you don't do general practice um all the time and you don't do it um a significant as a significant part of your job that you do, um you do lose some of the skills that you that you have in that you need in general practice so um, just uh, trying to keep up to date with the common kind of um, pathways for management of, of problems in primary care. Um, that, that was kind of a challenge as well. And, and again, um, and the other, other challenge, I think, for me w- was that I was only able to really commit to doing one day a week. And I then also um, struggled with the lack of continuity of care that I was able to offer people. So there were multiple kind of facets to it, um, to be honest. Yeah, they sound like familiar familiar discussions that I've had with other people when they're trying to juggle their special interest and at some point something has to give mm. and it's either general practice or your special interest thank you for being so honest and before we came on air you were talking about recently um you've employed some new doctors and um would you like to tell us about that because I found that quite interesting yeah I mean um, we've been very fortunate to be honest um, to be able to employ two new um, GPs and they're both very good GPs and um, and relatively young but also but not not really young you know so they're experienced and um, and I guess they both had different reasons for leaving primary care but part of the reason I think especially for one of the GPs was some of the challenges associated with um, COVID-19 and um, what happened with some of the GPs that were working as contractors and feeling quite vulnerable um, during COVID where um, job security wasn't um, uh, you know very good I guess and then being um, left without any um, you know sort of um, regular employment which um, obviously is incredibly challenging if you're um, the sole income earner in a family so I think that that was one of the factors uh, for for one of the the young doctors I think both of them um, were you know talked about um, how difficult general practice is now and um, you know the challenges and the demands on general practice I think is getting um, 
more and more. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, definitely COVID was a, was a factor, I think, for at least one of the GPs. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Vicky. And I know that, um, you know, I work as a contractor also. And as COVID hit my hours, I was the first one to have my hours reduced. And I was so grateful to have the podcast work as my special interest where I could keep working and still have an income stream. So I can totally relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the DHBs, obviously, there are some challenges working for DHBs, but there are also some really, um, some really good benefits, I think, do you know what I mean? And um, I don't think we can underestimate that, to be honest, in, in, in these sort of um, circumstances. Mm, absolutely. And Vicky, you mentioned um, doing the training program. I wonder if you could talk us through what training in addiction medicine looks like and what the commitment is. So I did the training with the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. So they offer, um, that's a three-year training 18 months of that is what's called core training and then 18 months actually you don't need to work full-time within an addiction service but um so and, and, and what it involves is predominantly um assessments that are um well formative assessments I guess is what they're called but anyway so um and no exams so um and there are a number of projects that you have to complete as well so that, so that that was you know a good training. We've got one GP at the moment that's um I'm doing her training at, um, with cats, and then I um these two new GPs are both interested in in doing it. So I would I supervise um the trainees. The training um the, at the end of the training, what you have become is a fellow um of the Australasian chapter of addiction medicine. So that's a recognized, um, well, it's a recognized fellowship, but the little sting at the moment in New Zealand is that the fellow, the, the training or the, the um, is not currently vocationally recognized by the medical council. So we're, I've had a battle about that and the new um, member, uh, person on the education committee is currently having a battle about that. So we currently, the addiction sits under the umbrella of mental health or psychiatry. So um, my work in addictions, um, I have a collegial relationship with a psychiatrist who oversees that part of, who oversees that bit of my work at the moment. But we are hoping that that will change in the future. Oh, the training is, um, I think it's really robust. I mean, what it involves is, is a, um, um, you have to do a certain amount of time working within each of the services within CAD. So your expectation is that they would do some detox work, that you would do some um, opiate treatment work, that you would work within our youth service. Um, the, there's a six-month pain attachment. So when I did my training, I went and worked for six months, one day a week with the pain service at Green Lane. One of the other, the other doctor has gone to um, the pain service down at Middlemore. So, I, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's quite a comprehensive um, training, which I think is great. So if someone was wanting to look at working in addiction medicine, you said that you've employed a number of general practitioners. Mm. Firstly, do they have to commit to the training? And uh, secondly, CADS is obviously one of the biggest um, mm. providers in Auckland, being one of the biggest DHBs. But where else can people with addiction medicine end up? That's a good question, actually. Um, 
So they don't, look, they don't absolutely have to commit to doing the training, to be honest, but obviously that's our preference um, because we obviously want to try and train up a, um, a specialist workforce. Prior, we would like people to do the training, obviously, um, but the only thing I'd have to say as well is that you do have to have a fellowship. So you have to have your fellowship in general practice to be able to do the training. So any you, you have to, to, to be able to do the training I did, you, you have to have a fellowship in some other um, specialty, including general practice. As far as like jobs, I mean, obviously... If we had um, trainees that um, that were coming in to do specifically the training and then wanted to continue to do GP work, then they could go back into primary care and just have a special interest in, in addictions. So that would be one pathway that we would, you know, support um, someone to do. Uh, there are lots of jobs out of Auckland, to be fair, in addictions. And um, so I think that there would be plenty of scope if somebody wanted to work out of the city. And there, so there are only two training places, um, gazetted or authorised training places to um, do the training, and that's Auckland and Wellington, because there we've got the, probably the biggest addiction services. I mean, I think the other thing to say is that in Australia, they have specific registrar training positions for um, addictions, whereas when we, we do the training or when I did, do, did the training and the new GPs are doing, they, were, they will be doing the training kind of alongside their normal role, their normal job. Um, we haven't got um, at this stage any funding or there is no funding at the moment for any specific registrar kind of training positions. So, so that can mean that the training may be um, st- maybe slightly longer, but not, not much longer, to be honest. Excellent. Thank you, Vicky. It's been really inspirational talking to you about this. Ah, no, it's a pleasure and um, I hope I haven't put everyone off, but uh, it's a great, it's a great, um, a great area of medicine to work in. And I think, um, you know, I do want to say that, that there's a lot of um, scope in, in, in addictions for not only working in, um, with the clients in the clinical roles, but, you know, the public health and um, some of that work um, and advocating for, for um, our patients and and all of that, there's just a huge scope, to be honest, um, in, 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 in that area of medicine. So, yeah. Mm. But thank you. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Vicky. I appreciate it. So my next guest is Dr. Marcia Walker, who's a general practitioner at Manly Medical Centre in Whangapura, north of Auckland. They're a teaching practice who support the development of young GPs. And Marcia has a special interest in appearance medicine. Marcia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So cosmetic medicine, tell us about your special interest. Yeah, so um, I guess I um, developed a bit of a passion for it um, about 12 years ago uh, when I um, had the delightful experience of actually being the the, the guinea pig (laughs) uh, patient for a friend of mine who was um, training, doing some training in it. And uh, I guess fortune favours the brave. I received my first treatment and went, well, if that, that, was, that wasn't, wasn't too bad. And um, I'm quite interested to know more about it myself and really just kind of got into it that way. And it just sort of took on a bit of a mind of its own and um, uh, did some courses and did a whole lot of reading and um, attended some conferences, as you do, to get some more information and some more education. And, um, you know, uh, several years later, I was starting to incorporate it into my into my practice, and has really just gone from there, from strength to strength. I really, really enjoy it. It's a bit different. It's different to your standard general practice. Someone comes in, there's something wrong with them. You try and find out what's wrong with them. You support them, try and fix them. Uh, this is someone coming in who's maybe got something that they would feel otherwise a bit uncomfortable talking about. And I mean, beauty, talking about beauty, talking about appearance, isn't something that comes naturally. I think to people. 
And yet, as doctors, we talk about those uncomfortable things all the time. So why not talking about things that might bother people with their appearance? And in the same vein, we can do something to help them with that problem. Uh, so it's really nice to have, um, to have that um, skill set to be able to offer them a treatment that might make them feel better about how they see themselves uh, and all of the benefits that go with that. Uh, so it's quite a positively geared uh, approach to medicine as opposed to dealing with sickness or illness or disability. It's, um, it, it's got a nice sort of just a nice twist, but still with uh, a focus on health and well-being. So yeah, it's a lovely string to have to a general practice bow, I think, and it suits general practice quite well in that it's a, an, an office-based procedure. It doesn't use anything too wacky in terms of machinery or equipment. It's the same equipment that uh, we use for many procedures that we do in general practice, uh, mm -hmm. syringes, needles, uh, diluents, and an and, and aesthetic eye. So it's... Um, they're fairly simple techniques, but they can really yield such positive results for patients. And so um, I think from a general practice perspective, it's certainly part of, uh, or certainly an approach to your practice that, that would enhance it. Um, and I'm, I'd certainly encourage anyone with an interest in it to, to look into it further. Marcy, you mentioned extra training. Tell us about the training that you did and what training is available in New Zealand should someone want to look at appearance medicine? Yeah, so the, the training has changed quite a bit. Uh, when I sort of first started training, it was really kind of early on in the um, uh, introduction of cosmetic medicine as a sort of a, a, a subspecialty or an interest area. And most of the training at that stage was being delivered by the companies that were, um, that were distributing the medicines involved. So Botox and, um, and, and Dysport primarily from the toxin ranges and then uh, a range of dermal fillers which are used for volume enhancement uh, and the treatment of deep lines as well. So most of the training in the, those days was sort of being delivered by, um, by the companies uh, and then uh, doctors that were, that were sort of associated with those companies would sort of um, go out and do sort of training as well. But there was no sort of formal training program. Since then, uh, there, there has been, um, well, there was the New Zealand Cosmetic, uh, New Zealand College of Appearance Medicine, um, which um, was tried to get up and running and I think has since become uh, the New Zealand Society for Cosmetic Medicine, uh, who run a training program which is uh, fairly comprehensive and worth doing and certainly worth looking into if you have, had, have an interest in developing um, multiple skills uh, in the area of appearance medicine. And they are a, a sort of a sit under the current college uh, of GPs at the moment. So uh, they're, they're sort of a, um, I guess, a, a sub-branch or a sub-faculty. I'm not quite sure what their technical term would be. But uh, yeah, so, so GPs can certainly um, go through them who run a, a two-year program to train GPs who want to work specifically in this area or have more um, training in this spe uh, specific area. Yeah. When we talked to um, Vicky McFarlane about addiction just before, she was saying that you had to have your fellowship to go and do addiction medicine. Do you know if that's the case with appearance medicine? Do you know that detail? Well, that's a really good question. I, I actually don't. You didn't used to, uh, but I, my understanding is that you do need to be a fellow of a college now, not necessarily the GP college, because I know that there are people doing the training program who are members of uh, other colleges, um, um, ranging from surgical to uh, um, uh, anaesthetics even. So I, I think you need to be a fellow of a college now, but that didn't used to always be the case, uh, but I believe it is the case now. 
And Marcia, you mentioned that cosmetic medicine fits quite nicely alongside general practice. And I got the feeling that you're incorporating it into your daily practice. Is that the case or do you have specific clinics that you run within the practice? How does it work for you? Yeah, look, I, I try to keep my patients um, separate, and I suppose that <laughs> COVID's really put paid to that too, of course, but even pre-COVID, uh, I would try and um, um, cluster my patients uh, so that my cosmetic patients would be seen um, in a specific clinic at certain times, um, as opposed to sort of smattering them in amongst my um, my, my GP patients, um, mostly because, um, you know, there is a bit of setup of your room that you want to have done, um, and it's much easier to have that uh, in one lot. So you can certainly run them out of your general practice, but you probably would want to have dedicated time for them. Um, and um, and some, sometimes that's as much around not wanting to necessarily have your, uh, your healthy, well-appearance patient uh, sitting side by side next to someone who's got a uh, a respiratory infection but as I say I guess with COVID now that's uh, <laughs> that's probably changing across the board generally anyway so yeah certainly running it as a dedicated clinic it would be the, the the preference but you know there's lots of flexibility within it and and certainly there are smaller cosmetic procedures which you could easily um, do as part of uh, you know just in amongst your general practice work as, as well so it's, it's a very flexible sort of area of interest in that way depending on how far you sort of go with it some people just start out doing simple botulinum toxin injections and that's all they want to do Uh, and that would certainly be something that you could do quite easily and comfortably uh, once you're comfortable with it within a 15 minute gp consult so yeah and do you see just your patients or you'll see casual sort of casual cosmetic patients how does that bit of it work? yeah no no I I see casual cosmetic patients uh, um, by and large I, I I will see my my GP patients too if they want but I I try I sort of almost try to keep that part of it separate I, I don't want to in a way leverage my general practice work into my appearance medicine work in that way if a patient knows that I do cosmetic medicine obviously I'm happy to treat them <laughs> but but I certainly don't um, encourage patients um, who haven't approached me directly for that uh, to have treatment I think that's that's um, for me personally crossing a, a professional boundary that doesn't quite feel right um, so no I generally treat casual patients uh, and and um, and will see them as often as they as they want to be seen um and uh and and that's generally how i do that and have any other doors opened for you having the appearance needs and interest um yeah well they have i mean it's a growing industry generally so it's um it's the 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 procedures that we do um are also being done by a number of cosmetic injecting nurses and even dentists such as the, um, the, particularly around dermal fillers um, being um, largely currently unregulated as a, they're not prescription medicines, unlike the botulinum toxin, toxins where you need to have a prescription for them. But, but it's, it's certainly an, an industry that is um, spreading really um, and, and getting bigger. And, um, and, and with that in mind, of course, there's a, the dollar value that goes with that. And I think um, people have seen that there's money to be made in it. And as a result, uh, there are companies that are setting up who take advantage of that. And they do require uh, a degree of medical oversight. Um, uh, I was about, about five years ago, I was approached by um, the cosmetic clinic, uh, a New Zealand um, uh, business that was starting up and um, needed someone to oversee uh, their nurses, for instance, and so that that was an opportunity that I would not have had put in front of me had I not 
taken that first treatment myself some 12 years ago. So, uh, you know, uh, the industry is changing, it's growing, it's um, growing at a monstrous rate. In fact, um, the cosmetic clinic's now up to 10 clinics large. So, you know, taking those opportunities early on, I didn't realize where it quite would lead me to, but it's, it's um, yeah, it's led me down a very interesting um, pathway and certainly opened up doors there that would not have happened otherwise. So, yeah. Marcia, do you find that having your special interest will keep you in general practice for longer? Does it provide you a bit of a breathing space, perhaps, from the day-to-day? Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. I mean, I love my general practice work, and I I wouldn't be anything other than a GP, to be honest. I I really genuinely, properly love it. Um, It's such a privileged position that I think we have. And the variety and the breadth and the depth of the work that we do is just unparalleled in um, the satisfaction that you get from that job. However, that being said, <laughs> there is no doubt that, uh, that, that it can be overwhelming at times. And what I love about my parents' medicine work alongside of that is that it just provides a little break. Uh, it's a little mental break from the intensity that comes with all the other aspects of general practice. And it really is. They're, they're interesting patients. They, they really enjoy the results that they get from the treatments that, treatments that you give to them. Uh, yeah, so, so absolutely, this is the very thing that will keep me in general practice longer. And actually, general practice will keep me in appearance medicine longer too. The, the, the reverse of that is also true. I likewise could not do 100% appearance medicine. Uh, I, I really couldn't. Um, as much as I enjoy that work, uh, the, the, uh, that would also come with a degree of stress. So I think spreading it across several modalities, or at least to general practice and then an area of special interest, whatever area of special interest that might be for a GP, um, I think that's always going to provide a reciprocal benefit uh, to your work. Well, thank you for talking to us. It's been a pleasure and an eye-opener. So um, we really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank our six guest speakers for joining us on this podcast episode, and I hope you found it inspirational and useful. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them. Also, you can go to our website, goodfellowunit.org, to find further podcasts, some webinars, some med cases, and e-learning modules. Thank you for listening.